Even shorn of her layers of protective clothing, Lady Sybil Ramkin was still toweringly big. Vimes knew that the barbarian hublander folk had legends about great chain-mailed, armour-brad, cart-horse-riding maidens who swooped down on battlefields and carried off dead warriors on their cropper to a glorious roistering afterlife while singing in a pleasing mezzo-soprano. Lady Ramkin could have been one of them. She could have led them. She could have carried off a battalion. When she spoke, every word was like a hearty slap on the back and clanged with the aristocratic self-assurance of the totally well-bred. The vowel sounds alone would have cut teak. Vimes's ragged forebears were used to voices like that, usually from heavily armoured people on the back of a war charger, telling them why it would be a jolly good idea, don't you know, to charge the enemy and hit them for six. His legs wanted to stand to attention. Prehistoric men would have worshipped her, and in fact had amazingly managed to carve lifelike statues of her thousands of years ago. She had a mass of chestnut hair, a wig, Vimes learned later. No one who had much to do with dragons kept their own hair for long. She also had a dragon on her shoulder. It had been introduced as Talonthrust Vincent Wonder Kind of Quirm, referred to as Vinny, and seemed to be making a large contribution to the unusual chemical smell that pervaded the house. This smell permeated everything. Even the generous slice of cake she offered him tasted of it. The, uh, shoulder, it looks, uh... Very nice, he said, desperate to make conversation. Rubbish, said her ladyship. I'm just training him up because shoulder-sitters fetch twice the price. Vimes murmured that he had occasionally seen society ladies with small, colourful dragons on their shoulders and thought it looked very nice. Uh, it sounds nice, she said, I'll grant you. Then they realise it means soot burns, frizzled hair and crapple down their back. Those talons dig in, too, and then they think the thing's getting too big and smelly, and the next thing you know it's either down to the Moorpork Sunshine Sanctuary for lost dragons, or the old heave-ho into the river with a rope around your neck, poor little buggers. She sat down, arranging a skirt that could have made sails for a small fleet. Now then, Captain Vimes, was it? Vimes was at a loss. Ramkin's long dead stared down at him from ornate frames high on the shadowy walls. Between, around and under the portraits were the weapons they'd presumably used, and had used well and often by the look of them. Suits of armour stood in dented ranks along the walls. Quite a number, he couldn't help noticing, had large holes in them. The ceiling was a faded riot of moth-eaten banners. You did not need forensic examination to understand that Lady Ramkin's ancestors had never shirked a fight. It was amazing that she was capable of doing something so unwarlike as having a cup of tea. My forebears, she said, following his hypnotised gaze. You know, not one Ramkin in the last thousand years has died in his bed. Yes, ma'am. Source of family pride, that. Yes, ma'am. Quite a few of them have died in other peoples, of course. Captain Vimes's teacup rattled in its saucer. Yes, ma'am, he said. Captain is such a dashing title, I've always thought. She gave him a bright, brittle smile. I mean, colonels and so on are always so stuffy. Majors are pompous, but one always feels somehow that there is something delightfully dangerous about a captain. What was it you had to show me? Vimes gripped his parcel like a chastity belt. I wondered, he faltered, how big uh, swamp... Uh, he stopped, 
Something dreadful was happening to his lower regions. Lady Ramkin followed his gaze. Oh, take no notice of him, she said cheerfully. Hit him with a cushion if he's a bother. A small elderly dragon had crawled out from under his chair and placed its jowly muzzle in Vimes's lap. It stared up at him soulfully with big brown eyes and gently dribbled something quite corrosive by the feel of it over his knees. And it stank like the ring around an acid bath. "'That's dewdrop Maybelline Talonthrust the first, said her ladyship. "'Champion and sire of champions. "'No fire left now, poor soppy old thing. "'He likes his belly rubbed.' "'Vimes made surreptitiously vicious jerking motions "'to dislodge the old dragon. "'It blinked mournfully at him with roomy eyes "'and rolled back the corner of its mouth "'exposing a picket fence of soot-blackened teeth.' "'Just push him off if he's a nuisance,' said Lady Ramkin cheerfully. "'Now then, what was it you were asking?' "'I was wondering how big swamp dragons grow,' said Vimes, trying to shift position. There was a faint growling noise. "'You came all the way up here to ask me that? "'Well, I seem to recall Gayheart Talonthrust of Ankh stood fourteen thumbs high, toe to Matlock.' "'mused Lady Ramkin. "'Er, about three foot six inches,' she added kindly. "'No bigger than that,' said Vimes, hopefully. "'In his lap the old dragon began to snore gently. "'Golly, no, he was a bit of a freak, actually. "'Mostly they don't get much bigger than eight thumbs.' "'Captain Vimes's lips moved in a hurried calculation. Two feet?' he ventured. Well done! That's the cobs, of course. The hens are a bit smaller. Captain Vimes wasn't going to give in. A cob would be a male dragon, he said. Only after the age of two years, said Lady Ramkin triumphantly. Up to the age of eight months, he's a pumet. Then he's a cock until fourteen months, and then he's a snood. Captain Vimes sat entranced, eating the horrible cake, breeches gradually dissolving as the stream of information flooded over him. How the males fought with flame, but in the laying season only the hens breathed fire. Only until their third clutch, of course, after that their dams. From the combustion of complex intestinal gases to incubate the eggs which needed such a fierce temperature while the males gathered firewood. A group of swamp dragons was a slump, or an embarrassment. A female was capable of laying up to three clutches of four eggs every year, most of which were trodden on by an absent-minded male, and that dragons of both sexes were vaguely uninterested in one another, and indeed everything except firewood, except for about once every two months when they became as single-minded as a buzzsaw. He was helpless to prevent himself being taken out to the kennels at the back, outfitted from neck to ankle in leather armour faced with steel plates, and ushered into the long, low building where the whistling had come from. The temperature was terrible, but not as bad as the cocktail of smells. He staggered aimlessly from one metal-lined pen to another, while pear-shaped, squeaking little horrors with red eyes were introduced as Moonpenny Duchess Marchpane, who's gravid at the moment, and Moonmist Talonthrust II, who was best of breed at Pseudopolis last year. Jets of pale green flame played across his knees. Many of the stalls had rosettes and certificates pinned over them. And this one, I'm afraid, is good boy Bindle Featherstone of Quirm, said Lady Ramkin, relentlessly. Vimes stared groggily over the charred barrier at the small creature curled up in the middle of the floor. 
It bore about the same resemblance to the rest of them as Nobby did to the average human being. Something in its ancestry had given it a pair of eyebrows that were about the same size as its stubby wings, which could never have supported it in the air. Its head was the wrong shape, like an anteater. It had nostrils like jet intakes. If it ever managed to get airborne, the things would have the drag of twin parachutes. It was also turning on Captain Vimes the most silently intelligent look he'd ever had from any animal, including Corporal Nobbs. "'It happens,' said Lady Ramkins, sadly. "'It's all down to genes, you know.' "'It is,' said Vimes. "'Somehow the creature seemed to be concentrating all the power its siblings wasted in flame and noise into a stare like a thermic lance. "'He couldn't help remembering how much he'd wanted a puppy when he was a little boy.' Mind you, they'd been starving. Anything with meat on it would have done. He heard the dragon lady say, One tries to breed for a good flame, depth of scale, correct colour and so on. One just has to put up with the occasional total whittle. The little dragon turned on Vimes a gaze that would be guaranteed to win it the award for dragon the judges would be most likely to take home and use as a portable gaslighter. Total whittle, Vimes thought. He wasn't sure of the precise meaning of the word, but he could hazard a shrewd guess. It sounded like whatever it was you had left when you had extracted everything of any value whatsoever. Like the watch, he thought. Total whittles, every one of them. And just like him, it was the saga of his life. That's nature for you, said her ladyship. Of course, I wouldn't dream of breeding from him, but he wouldn't be able to anyway. Why not? said Vimes, because dragons have to mate in the air, and he'll never be able to fly with those wings, I'm afraid. I'll be sorry to lose the bloodline, naturally. His sire was Brenda Rodley's tree-bite bright scale. <laughs> Do you know Brenda? Er, uh, no, said Vimes. Lady Ramkin was one of those people who assumed that everyone else knew everyone one knew. Charming girl. Anyway, his brothers and sisters are shaping up very well. Poor little bastard, thought Vimes. That's nature for you in a nutshell, always dealing off the bottom of the pack. No wonder they call her a mother. You said you had something to show me, Lady Ramkin prompted. Vimes wordlessly handed her the parcel. She slipped off her heavy mittens and unwrapped it. Plaster cast of a footprint, she said boldly. Well, does it remind you of anything, said Vimes. Could be a wading bird? Oh, Vimes was crestfallen. Lady Ramkin laughed. Or a really big dragon. Got it out of a museum, did you? No, I got it off the street this morning. Ha! Huh, someone's been playing tricks on you, old chap. Uh, there was uh, circumstantial evidence. He told her. She stared at him. Draco nobilis, she said hoarsely. Pardon, said Vimes. Draco nobilis, the noble dragon, as opposed to these fellows. She waved a hand in the direction of the massed ranks of whistling lizards. Draco vulgaris, the lot of them. But the big ones are all gone, you know. This really is a nonsense. No two ways about it. All gone. Beautiful things they were, weighed Tons. Biggest things ever to fly. No one knows how they did it. And then they realised. It was suddenly very quiet. All along the rows of kennels the dragons were silent, bright-eyed and watchful. 
they were staring at the roof. Carrot looked around him. Shelves stretched away in every direction. On those shelves, books. He made a calculated guess. This is the library, isn't it? he said. The librarian maintained his gentle but firm grip on the boy's hand and led him along the maze of aisles. Is there a body? said Carrot. There'd have to be. Worse than murder. A body in a library. It could lead to anything. The ape eventually padded to a halt in front of a shelf no different than, it seemed, a hundred others. Some of the books were chained up. There was a gap. The librarian pointed to it. Ooh. Well, what about it? A hole where a book should be. Ooh. A book has been taken. A book has been taken. You summoned the watch? Carrot drew himself up proudly. Because someone's taken a book? You think that's worse than murder? The librarian gave him the kind of look other people would reserve for people who said things like, What's so bad about genocide? This is practically a criminal offence, wasting watch time, said Carrot. Why don't you just tell the head wizards or whoever they are? Ook! The librarian indicated with some surprisingly economical gestures that most wizards would not find their own bottoms with both hands. Well, I don't see what we can do about it, said Carrot. What's the book called? The librarian scratched his head. This one was going to be tricky. He faced Carrot, put his leather glove hands together, then folded them open. I know it's a book. What's its name? The librarian sighed and held up a hand. Four words, said Carrot. First word, the ape pinched two wrinkled fingers together. Small word, A, the, for, the, the, second word. Third word, small word, the, A, to, of, from, of, of. The, something, of, something. Second word, what? Oh, first syllable, fingers, Touching your fingers, thumbs. The orangutan growled and tugged theatrically at one large hairy ear. Oh, sounds like fingers. Hand. Adding up. Uh, sums. Cut off. Smaller word, smaller word, smaller word. Uh, sum, sum. Second syllable, small, very small syllable. A, in, un, on, on, sum. Sum on. Sum on. Sum on. The summoner. Summoning. Sum. Summoning. The summoning of something. Oh, this is fun, isn't it? Fourth word. Whole word. He peered intently as the librarian gyrated mysteriously. Uh, big thing. Huge big thing. Flapping. Great big flapping leaping thing. Teeth. Huffing, blowing. Great big huge blowing flapping thing. Sweat broke out on Carrot's forehead as he tried obediently to understand. Sucking fingers. Sucking fingers thing? Um, burnt? Hot? Great, big, hot, blowing, flapping thing? The librarian rolled his eyes. Homo sapiens, you could keep it. The great dragon danced and spun and trod the air over the city. Its colour was moonlight gleaming off its scales. Sometimes it would twist and glide with deceptive speed over the rooftops for the sheer joy of existing. And it was all wrong, Vimes thought. Part of him was marvelling at the sheer beauty of the sight, but an insistent, weaselly little group of brain cells from the wrong side of the synapses was scrawling its graffiti on the walls of wonderment. 
It's a bloody great lizard, they jeered. Must weigh tons. Nothing that big can fly, not even on beautiful wings. And what is a flying lizard doing with great big scales on its back? Five hundred feet above him, a lance of blue-white flame roared into the sky. It can't do something like that. It'd burn its own lips off. Beside him, Lady Ramkin stood with her mouth open. Behind her, the little caged dragons yammered and howled. The great beast turned in the air and swooped over the rooftops. The flame darted out again. Below it, yellow flames sprang up. It was done so quietly and stylishly that it took Vimes several seconds to realise that several buildings had in fact been set on fire. Golly, said Lady Ramkin, look, it's using the thermals. That's what the fire is for. She turned to Vimes, her eyes hopelessly aglow. Do you realise we're very probably seeing something that no one else has seen for centuries? Yes, it's a bloody flying alligator setting fire to my city, shouted Vimes. She wasn't listening to him. There must be a breeding colony somewhere, she said. After all this time, where do you think it lives? Vimes didn't know, but he swore to himself that he would find out and ask it some very serious questions. One egg, breathed the breeder. Just let me get my hands on one egg. Vimes stared at her in genuine astonishment. It dawned on him that he was very probably a flawed character. Below them, another building exploded into flame. How far exactly, he said, speaking very slowly and carefully as to a child, did these things fly? Oh, they're very territorial animals, murmured her ladyship. According to legend, they... Vimes realised he was in for another dose of dragon law. Just give me the facts, milady, he said impatiently. Not very far, really, she said, slightly taken aback. Thank you very much, ma'am. You've been very helpful, muttered Vimes, and broke into a run. Somewhere in the city. There was nothing outside for miles except low fields and swamp. It had to be living somewhere in the city. His sandals flapped on the cobbles as he hurtled down the streets, somewhere in the city, which was totally ridiculous, of course, totally ridiculous and impossible. He didn't deserve this. Of all the cities in all the world it could have flown to, he thought, it's flown into mine. By the time he reached the river, the dragon had vanished, but a pall of smoke was hanging over the streets and several human bucket chains had been formed to pass lumps of the river to the stricken buildings. The Guild of Firefighters had been outlawed by the patrician the previous year after many complaints. The point was that if you bought a contract from the Guild, your house would be protected against fire. Unfortunately, the general Ankh-Morpork ethos quickly came to the fore, and firefighters would tend to go to prospective clients' houses in groups, making loud comments like, Very inflammable-looking place, this, and probably go up like a firework with just one carelessly dropped match. Know what I mean? The job was considerably hampered by the droves of people streaming out of the streets carrying their possessions. Most of the city was wood and thatch, and they weren't taking any chances. In fact, the danger was surprisingly small, mysteriously small when you came to think about it. Vimes had surreptitiously taken to carrying a notebook these days, and he had noted the damage as if the mere act of writing it down somehow made the world a more understandable place. Item. A coach house belonging to an inoffensive businessman who'd seen his new carriage go up in flames. Item, a small vegetable shop with pinpoint accuracy. 
Vimes wondered about that. He'd bought some apples in there once, and there didn't appear to be anything about it that a dragon could possibly take offence at. Still, very considerate of the dragon, he thought, as he made his way to the watch-house. When you think of all the timber yards, hay ricks, thatched roofs and oil stores it could have hit by chance, it's managed to really frighten everyone without actually harming the city. Rays of early morning sunlight were piercing the drifts of smoke as he pushed open the door. This was home. Not the bare little room over the candlemaker's shop in Wixon's Alley where he slept, but this nasty brown room that smelt of unswept chimneys, Sergeant Colan's pipe, Nobby's mysterious personal problem, and latterly, Carrot's armour polish. It was almost like home. No one else was there. He wasn't entirely surprised. He clumped up to his office and leaned back in his chair, whose cushion would have been thrown out of its basket in disgust by an incontinent dog, pulled his helmet over his eyes and tried to think. No good rushing about. The dragon had vanished in all the smoke and confusion, as suddenly as it had come. Time for rushing about soon enough. The important thing was working out where to rush to. He'd been right. Wading bird. But where did you start looking for a bloody great dragon in a city of a million people? He was aware that his right hand, entirely unbidden, had pulled open the bottom drawer and three of his fingers, acting on sealed orders from his hindbrain, had lifted out a bottle. It was one of those bottles that emptied themselves. Reason told him that sometimes he must occasionally start one, break the seal, see amber liquid glistening all the way up to the neck. It was just that he couldn't remember the sensation. It was as if the bottles arrived two-thirds empty. He stared at the label. It seemed to be Jimkin Bearhugger's old selected Dragon's Blood whisky. Cheap and powerful. You could light fires with it. You could clean spoons. You didn't have to drink much of it to be drunk, which was just as well. It was Nobby who shook him awake with the news that there was a dragon in the city, and also that Sergeant Colon had had a nasty turn. Vimes sat and blinked owlishly while the words washed around him. Apparently, having a fire-breathing lizard focusing interestedly on one's nether regions from a distance of a few feet can upset the strongest constitution. An experience like that could leave a lasting mark on a person. Vimes was still digesting this when Carrot turned up with the librarian swinging along behind him. Did you see it? Did you see it? he said. We all saw it, said Vimes. I know all about it, said Carrot triumphantly. Someone's brought it here with magic. Someone's stolen a book out of the library, and guess what it's called? Can't even begin to, said Vimes weakly. It's called The Summoning of Dragons. Ooh, confirmed the librarian. Oh, what's it about, said Vimes. The librarian rolled his eyes. It's about how to summon dragons by magic. Ooh. And that's illegal, that is, said Carrot happily. Releasing feral creatures upon the streets, contrary to the wild animals, brackets, public. Vimes groaned. That meant wizards. You got nothing but trouble with wizards. I suppose, he said, there wouldn't be another copy of this book around, would there? Ooh. The librarian shook his head. And you wouldn't happen to know what's in it? Vimes sighed. What? Oh, four words, he said wearily. First word sounds like bend, bow, sow, cow, how, how, how. Second word, small word, the A to two, two. Yes, understood, but I meant in any kind of detail. No, I see. 
"'What are we going to do now, sir?' said Carrot anxiously. "'It's out there,' intoned Nobby. "'Gone to ground, like, during the hours of daylight. "'Coiled up in its secret lair, on top of a great hoard of gold, "'dreaming ancient reptilian dreams from a dawn of time, "'waiting for the secret curtains of the night, "'when once more it will sally forth.' He hesitated and added sullenly, "'What you all looking at me like that for?' "'Very poetic,' said Carrot. "'Well, everyone knows the real old dragons used to go to sleep on a hoard of gold,' said Nobby. "'Well-known folk myth.' Vimes looked blankly into the immediate future. Vile though Nobby was, he was also a good indication of what was going through the mind of the average citizen. You could use him as a sort of laboratory rat to forecast what was going to happen next.' "'I expect you'd be really interested in finding out where that hoard is, wouldn't you?' said Vimes experimentally. Nobby looked even more shifty than usual. "'Well, Captain, I was thinking of having a bit of a look around, you know, when I'm off duty, of course,' he added virtuously. "'Oh, dear,' said Captain Vimes. He lifted up the empty bottle with great care and put it back in the drawer. The elucidated brethren were nervous.' A kind of fear crackled from brother to brother. It was the fear of someone who, having cheerfully experimented with pouring the powder and wadding the ball, has found that pulling the trigger had led to a god-awful bang, and pretty soon someone is bound to come and see who's making all the noise. The Supreme Grand Master knew that he had them, though. Sheep and lamb, sheep and lamb. Since they couldn't do anything much worse than they had already done, they might as well press on and damn the world and pretend they'd wanted it like this all along. Oh, the joy of it. Only Brother Plasterer was actually happy. Let that be a lesson to all oppressive vegetable sellers, he kept saying. Yes, um, said Brother Doorkeeper, only the thing is, there's no chance of us sort of accidentally summoning the dragon here, is there? I... That is, we have it under perfect control, said the Supreme Grand Master smoothly. The power is ours, I can assure you. The brothers cheered up a little bit. And now, the Supreme Grand Master continued, there is the matter of the king. The brothers looked solemn, except for Brother Plasterer. Have we found him, then? he said. That's a stroke of luck. You never listen, do you? snapped Brother Watchtower. It was all explained last week. We don't go around finding anyone. We make a king. I thought he was supposed to turn up because of destiny. Brother Watchtower sniggered. We sort of help destiny along a bit. The Supreme Grand Master smiled in the depths of his robe. It was amazing, this mystic business. You tell them a lie, and then when you don't need it any more, you tell them another lie and tell them they're progressing along the road to wisdom. Then instead of laughing, they follow you even more, hoping that at the heart of all the lies they'll find the truth, and bit by bit they accept the unacceptable. Amazing. Bloody hell, that's clever, said Brother Doorkeeper. How do we do that, then? Look, the Supreme Grand Master said what we do. We find some handsome lad who's good at taking orders. He kills the dragon and Bob's your uncle. Simple, much more intelligent than waiting for a so-called real king. But, 
Brother Plastra seemed deep in the toils of celebration. If we control the dragon, and we do control the dragon, right, then we don't need anyone killing it. We just stop summoning it, and everyone will be happy, right? Oh, yes, said Brother Watchtower nastily. I can just see it, can't you? We just trot out and say, Hello, we won't set fire to your houses anymore. Aren't we nice, do we? The whole point about the thing with the king is that he'll be a sort of... Uh, undeniably potent and romantic symbol of absolute authority, said the Supreme Grand Master smoothly. That's it, said Brother Watchtower, a potent authority. Oh, I see, said Brother Plasterer. Right, OK, that's what the king will be. That's it, said Brother Watchtower. No one going to argue with a potent authority, are they? Too right, said Brother Watchtower. Stroke of luck, then, finding the true king right now, said Brother Plasterer. Million to one chance, really. We haven't found the right king. We don't need the right king, said the Supreme Grand Master wearily. For the last time, I've just found us a likely lad who looks good in a crown and can take orders and knows how to flourish a sword. Now, just listen. Flourishing, of course, was important. It didn't have much to do with wielding. Wielding a sword the Supreme Grand Master considered was simply the messy business of dynastic surgery. It was just a matter of thrust and cut. Whereas a king had to flourish one. It had to catch the light in just the right way, leaving watchers in no doubt that here was destiny's chosen. He'd taken a long time preparing the sword and shield. It had been very expensive. The shield shone like a dollar in a sweep's ear hole, but the sword, the sword was magnificent. It was long and shiny. It looked like something some genius of metalwork, one of those little Zen guys who works only by the light of dawn and can beat a club sandwich of folded steels into something with the cutting edge of a scalpel and the stopping power of a sex-crazed rhinoceros on bad acid, had made and then retired in tears because he'd never, ever do anything so good again. There were so many jewels on the hilt, it had to be sheathed in velvet. You had to look at it through smoked glass. Just laying a hand on it practically conferred kingship. As for the lad, he was a distant cousin, keen and vain and stupid in a passably aristocratic way. Currently he was under guard in a distant farmhouse with an adequate supply of drink and several young ladies, although what the boy seemed most interested in was mirrors. Probably hero material, the Supreme Grand Master thought glumly. I suppose, said Brother Watchtower, that he isn't the real heir to the throne. What do you mean, said the Supreme Grand Master. Well, you know how it is. Fate plays funny tricks. <laughs> It'd be a laugh, wouldn't it, said Brother Watchtower, if this lad turned out to be the real king after all this trouble. There is no real king any more, snapped the Supreme Grand Master. What do you expect? Some people wandering in the wilderness for hundreds and hundreds of years, patiently handing down a sword and a birthmark? Some sort of magic? He spat the word. He'd make use of magic, means to an end, end justifies means and so forth, but to go around believing it, believing it had some sort of moral force like logic, made him wince. Good grief, man, be logical, be rational. 
Even if any of the old royal family survived, the bloodline would be so watered down by now that there must be thousands of people who lay claim to the throne. Even, he tried to think of the least likely claimant, even someone like Brother Dunnikin. He stared at the assembled brethren. Don't see him here tonight, by the way. Funny thing, that, said Brother Watchtower thoughtfully. Didn't you hear? What? He got bitten by a crocodile on his way home last night, poor little bugger. What? Million to one chance. It had escaped from a menagerie or something and was lying low in his backyard. He went to feel under his doormat for his door key and it had him by the fumes. A species of geranium. Brother Watchtower fumbled under his robe and produced a grubby brown envelope. We're having a whip round to buy him some grapes and that. I don't know whether you'd like to, uh Put me down for three dollars, said the Supreme Grand Master. Brother Watchtower nodded. Funny thing, he said, I already have. Just a few more nights, thought the Supreme Grand Master. By tomorrow the people would be so desperate, they'd crown even a one-legged troll if he got rid of the dragon. And we'll have a king, and he'll have an advisor, a trusted man, of course, and this stupid rabble can go back to the gutter. No more dressing up, no more ritual. No more summoning the dragon. I can give it up, he thought. I can give it up any time I like. The streets outside the patrician's palace were thronged. There was a manic air of carnival. Vimes ran a practised eye over the assortment before him. It was the usual ark pork mob in times of crisis. Half of them were here to complain, a quarter of them were here to watch... The other half and the remainder were here to rob, importune or sell hot dogs to the rest. There were a few new faces, though. There were a number of grim men with big swords slung over their shoulders and whips slung on their belts, striding through the crowds. News spreads quick, don't it? observed a familiar voice by his ear. Morning, Captain. Vimes looked into the grinning, cadaverous face of cut-me-own-throat Dibbler purveyor of absolutely anything that could be sold hurriedly from an open suitcase in a busy street and was guaranteed to have fallen off the back of an ox-cart. Boarding throat, said Vimes absently. What you selling? Genuine article, Captain. Throat leaned closer. He was the sort of person who could make good morning sound like a once-in-a-lifetime never-to-be-repeated offer. His eyes swivelled back and forth in their sockets like two rodents trying to find a way out. Can't afford to be without it, he hissed. Anti-dragon cream, personal guarantee. If you're incinerated, you get your money back, no quibble. What you're saying, said Vimes slowly, if I understand the wording correctly, is that if I am baked alive by the dragon, you'll return the money? Upon personal application, said Cut Me Own Throat. He unscrewed the lid from a jar of vivid green ointment and thrust it under Vimes's nose. Made from over fifty different rare spices and herbs, to a recipe known only to a bunch of ancient monks what live on some mountain somewhere. One dollar a jar, and I'm cutting me own throat here. It's a public service, really, he added piously. You've got to hand it to those ancient monks brewing it up so quickly, said Vimes. Clever buggers! agreed cut me own throat it must be all that meditation and yak yogurt so what's happening throat said vimes who were all the guys with the big swords dragon hunters captain 
the patrician announced a reward of $50,000 to anyone who brings him the dragon's head. Not attached to the dragon either. He's no fool, that man. What? That's what he said. It's all written on posters. $50,000? Not chicken feed, eh? More like dragon fodder, said Vimes. It'd bring trouble, you mark his words. I'm amazed you're not grabbing a sword and joining in. I'm more what you might call the service sector, Captain. Throat looked both ways conspiratorially and then passed Vimes a slip of parchment. It said, Anti-Dragon Mirror Shields, Ark Dollars 500, Portable Lair Detectors, Ark Dollars 250, Dragon Piercing Arrows, Ark Dollars 100 each, Shovels, Ark Dollars 5, Picks, Ark Dollars 5, Sacks, Ark Dollars 1. Vimes handed it back. Why the sacks, he said. On account of the hoard, said Throat. Oh, yes, said Vimes gloomily, of course. Tell you what, said Throat, tell you what, for our boys in brown, ten percent off. And you're cutting your own throat, Throat. Fifteen percent for officers, urged Throat, as Vimes walked away. The cause of the slight panic in his voice was soon apparent. He had plenty of competition. The people of Ankh-Morpork were not by nature heroic, but were by nature salesmen. In the space of a few feet, Vimes could have bought any number of magical weapons, genuine certificate of authenticity with everyone, a cloak of invisibility, a good touch, he thought, and he was really impressed by the way the stall owner was using a mirror with no glass in it. And, by way of lighter relief, dragon biscuits, balloons and windmills on sticks. Copper bracelets guaranteed to bring relief from dragons were a nice thought. There seemed to be as many sacks and shovels about as there were swords. Gold. That was it. The hoard. $50,000. An officer of the watch earned $30 a month and had to pay to have his own dents beaten out. What he couldn't do with $50,000... Vimes thought about this for a while, and then thought of the things he could do with $50,000. There were so many more of them, for a start. He almost walked into a group of men clustered around a poster nailed to the wall. It declared, indeed, that the head of the dragon that had terrorised the city would be worth 50000 Ark dollars to the brave hero that delivered it to the palace. One of the cluster, who from his size, weaponry, and that way he was slowly tracing the lettering with his finger, Vimes decided was a leading hero, was doing the reading for the others. To Turher Palaki, he concluded. Fifty thousand, said one of them reflectively, rubbing his chin. Cheap job, said the intellectual, well below the rate. Should be half the kingdom and his daughter's hand in marriage. Yes, but he ain't a king. He's a patrician. Well, half his patrimony, or whatever. What's his daughter like? The assembled hunters didn't know. He's not married, Vimes volunteered, and he hasn't got a daughter. They turned and looked him up and down. He could see the disdain in their eyes. They probably got through dozens like him every day. Not got a daughter, said one of them. Wants people to kill dragons and he hasn't got a daughter? Vimes felt in an odd way that he ought to support the lord of the city. He's got a little dog that he's very fond of, he said helpfully. 
Bleeding disgusting, not even having a daughter, said one of the hunters. And what's fifty thousand dollars these days? You spend that much in nets. That's right, said another. People think it's a fortune, but they don't reckon on... Well, it's not pensionable. There's all the medical expenses. You've got to go and buy and maintain your own gear. Wear and tear on virgins, nodded a small fat hunter. Yeah, and then there's... What? My speciality is unicorns, the hunter explained with an embarrassed smile. Oh, right. The first speaker looked like someone who'd always been dying to ask the question. I thought they were very rare these days. You're right there. You don't see many unicorns either, said the unicorn hunter. Vimes got the impression that, in his whole life, this was his only joke. Yeah, well, times are hard, said the first speaker sharply. Monsters are getting more uppity too, said another. I heard where this guy, he killed this monster in this lake, no problem, stuck its arm up over the door. Poor Encore J. Lays Ultras, said one of the listeners. Right, and you know what? It's mum come and complained. It's actual mum come right down to the hall the next day and complained, actually complained. That's the respect you get. The females are always the worst, said another hunter gloomily. I knew this cross-eyed gorgon once. Oh, she was a terror. Kept turning her old nose to stone. It's our asses on the line every time, said the intellectual. I mean, I wish I had a dollar for every horse I've had eaten out from right underneath me. Right. Fifty thousand dollars, he can stuff it. Yeah. Right. Cheapskate. Yeah, let's go and have a drink. Right. They nodded in righteous agreement and strode off towards the mended drum, except for the intellectual, who sidled uneasily back to Vimes. What sort of a dog? he said. What? said Vimes. I said, what sort of a dog? A small, wire-haired terrier, I think, said Vimes. The hunter thought about this for some time. Nah, he said eventually, and hurried off after the others. He's got an aunt in Pseudopolis, I believe, Vimes called after him. There was no response. The captain of the watch shrugged and carried on through the throng to the patrician's palace, where the patrician was having a difficult lunchtime. Gentlemen, he snapped, I really don't see what else there is to do. The assembled civic leaders muttered amongst themselves. At times like this, it's traditional that a hero comes forth said the president of the Guild of Assassins. A dragon slayer. Where is he? That's what I want to know. Why aren't our schools turning out young people with the kind of skills society needs? Fifty thousand dollars doesn't sound much, said the chairman of the Guild of Thieves. It may not be much to you, my dear sir, but it is all the city can afford, said the patrician firmly. If it doesn't afford any more than that, I don't think there'll be a city for long, said the thief. And what about trade? said the representative of the Guild of Merchants. People aren't going to sail her with a cargo of rare comestibles just to have it incinerated, are they? Gentlemen, gentlemen, the patrician raised his hands in a conciliatory fashion. It seems to me, he went on, taking advantage of the brief pause, that what we have here is a strictly magical phenomenon. 
I would like to hear from our learned friend on this point. Hmm? Someone nudged the Arch-Chancellor of Unseen University, who had nodded off. Uh, eh, what? said the wizard, startled into wakefulness. We were wondering, said the patrician loudly, what you were intending to do about this dragon of yours. The Arch-Chancellor was old, but a lifetime of survival in the world of competitive wizardry and the Byzantine politics of Unseen University meant that he could whip up a defensive argument in a split second. You didn't remain Arch-Chancellor for long if you let that sort of ingenuous remark whiz past your ear. My dragon, he said. It's well known that the great dragons are extinct, said the patrician brusquely, and besides, their natural habitat was definitely rural. So it seems to me that this one must be magic. With respect, Lord Vetinari, said the Arch-Chancellor, it has often been claimed that dragons are extinct, but the current evidence, if I may make so bold, tends to cast a certain doubt on the theory. As to habitat, what we are seeing here is simply a change of behaviour pattern occasioned by the spread of urban areas into the countryside, which has led many hitherto rural creatures to adopt, nay, in many cases, to positively mm, embrace a more municipal mode of existence. And many of them thrive on the new opportunities thereby opened to them. For example, foxes are always knocking over my dustbins. He beamed. He'd managed to get all the way through it without actually needing to engage his brain. Are you saying, said the assassin slowly, that what we've got here is the first civic dragon? That's evolution for you, said the wizard happily. It should do well, too, he added. Plenty of nesting sites and a more than adequate food supply. Silence greeted this statement until the merchant said, what exactly is it that they do eat? The thief shrugged. I seem to recall stories about virgins chained to huge rocks, he volunteered. It'll starve round here, then, said the assassin. We're on loam. They used to go around ravening, said the thief. Don't know if that's any help. Anyway, said the leader of the merchants, it seems to be your problem again, my lord. Five minutes later, the patrician was striding the length of the oblong office, fuming. They were laughing at me, said the patrician. I could tell. Did you suggest a working party, said once. Of course I did. It didn't do the trick this time. You know, I really am inclined to increase the reward money. I don't think that would work, my lord. Any proficient monster slayer knows the rate for the job. <laughs> Half the kingdom, muttered the patrician. And your daughter's hand in marriage, said once. I suppose an aunt isn't acceptable, the patrician said, hopefully. Tradition demands a daughter, my lord. The patrician nodded gloomily. Perhaps we can buy it off, he said aloud. Are dragons intelligent? I believe the word traditionally is cunning, my lord, said once. I understand they have a liking for gold. Really? Uh, what do they spend it on? They sleep on it, my lord. What? You mean in a mattress? No, my lord. 
On it? The patrician turned this fact over in his mind. Don't they find it rather knobbly? he said. So I would imagine, sir. I don't suppose anyone has ever asked. Hmm. Can they talk? They are apparently good at it, my lord. Ah, interesting. The patrician was thinking. If it can talk, it can negotiate. If it can negotiate, then I have it by the short, by the small scales, or whatever it is they have. And they are said to be silver-tongued, said once. The patrician leaned back in his chair. Only silver, he said. There was the sound of muted voices in the passageway outside, and Vimes was ushered in. Ah, Captain, said the patrician, what progress? I'm sorry, my lord, said Vimes, as the rain dripped off his cape. Towards apprehending this dragon, said the patrician firmly. The wading bird, said Vimes. You know very well what I mean, said Vetinari sharply. Investigations are in hand, said Vimes automatically. The patrician snorted. All you have to do is find its lair, he said. Once you have the lair, you have the dragon. That's obvious. Half the city seems to be looking for it. If there is a lair, said Vimes, once looked up sharply. Why do you say that? We are considering a number of possibilities, said Vimes, woodenly. If it has no lair, where does it spend its days, said the patrician. Inquiries are being pursued, said Vimes. Then pursue them with alacrity and find the lair, said the patrician sourly. Yes, sir. Permission to leave, sir? Very well. But I shall expect progress by tonight. Do you understand? Now why did I wonder if it has a lair, Vimes thought, as he stepped out into the daylight and the crowded square. Because it didn't look real, that's why. If it isn't real, then it doesn't need to do anything we expect. How can it walk out of an alley it didn't go into? Once you've ruled out the impossible, then whatever is left, however improbable, must be the truth. The problem lay in working out what was impossible, of course. That was the trick, all right. There was also the curious incident of the orangutan in the night-time. By day, the library buzzed with activity. Vimes moved through it diffidently. Strictly speaking, he could go anywhere in the city, but the university had always held that it fell under thaumaturgical law, and he felt it wouldn't be wise to make the kind of enemies where you were lucky to end up the same temperature, let alone the same shape. He found the librarian hunched over his desk. The ape gave him an expectant look. Haven't found it yet. Sorry, said Vimes. Enquiries are continuing. But there is a little help you could give me. Ook. Well, this is a magical library, right? I mean, these books are sort of intelligent, isn't that so? So I've been thinking. I bet if I got in here at night, they'd soon kick up a fuss, because they don't know me. But if they did know me, they'd probably not mind. So whoever took the book would have to be a wizard, wouldn't they? Or someone who works for the university, at any rate. The librarian glanced from side to side, then grasped Vimes's hand and led him into the seclusion of a couple of bookshelves. Only then did he nod his head. Someone they know? A shrug and then another nod. That's why you told us, is it? Ooh. And not the university council. Ooh. 
Any idea who it is? The librarian shrugged, a decidedly expressive gesture for a body which was basically a sack between a pair of shoulder blades. Well, it's something. Let me know if any other strange things happen, won't you? Vimes looked up at the banks of shelves. Stranger than usual, I mean. Ooh, thank you. It's a pleasure to meet a citizen who regards it as their duty to assist the watch. The librarian gave him a banana. Vimes felt curiously elated as he stepped out into the city's throbbing streets again. He was definitely detecting things. They were little bits of things, like a jigsaw. No one of them made any real sense, but they all hinted at a bigger picture. All he needed to do was find a corner, or a bit of an edge. He was pretty certain it wasn't a wizard, whatever the librarian might think. Not a proper paid-up wizard. This sort of thing wasn't their style. And there was, of course, this business about the lair. The most sensible course would be to wait and see if the dragon turned up tonight and try and see where. That meant a high place. Was there some way of detecting dragons themselves? He'd had a look at cut-me-own-throat Dibbler's dragon detectors, which consisted solely of a piece of wood on a metal stick. When the stick was burned through, you'd found your dragon. Like a lot of cut-me-own-throat's devices, it was completely efficient in its own special way, while at the same time being totally useless. There had to be a better way of finding the thing than waiting until your fingers were burned off. The setting sun spread out on the horizon like a lightly poached egg. The rooftops of Ankh-Morpork sprouted a fine array of gargoyles, even in normal times, but now they were alive with as ghastly an array of faces as ever were seen outside a woodcut about the evils of gin-drinking among the non-woodcut-buying classes. Many of the faces were attached to bodies holding a fearsome array of homely weapons that had been handed down from generation to generation for centuries, often with some force. From his perch on the roof of the watchhouse, Vimes could see the wizards lining the rooftops of the university and the gangs of opportunist horde researchers waiting in the streets, shovels at the ready. If the dragon really did have a bed somewhere in the city, then it would be sleeping on the floor tomorrow. From somewhere below came the cry of cut-me-own-throat Dibbler, or one of his colleagues, selling hot sausages. Vimes felt a sudden surge of civic pride. There had to be something right about a citizenry which, when faced with a catastrophe, thought about selling sausages to the participants. The city waited. A few stars came out. Colon, Nobby and Carrot were also on the roof. Colon was sulking because Vimes had forbidden him to use his bow and arrow. These weren't encouraged in the city, since the heft and throw of a longbow's arrow could send it through an innocent bystander a hundred yards away, rather than the innocent bystander at whom it was aimed. That's right, said Carrot. The Projectile Weapons, brackets, Civic Safety Act, 1634. Don't you keep on quoting all that sort of stuff, snapped Colon. We don't have any of them laws anymore. That's all old stuff. It's all more, what's the name now? Pragmatic. Law or no law, said Vimes. I say, put it away. But, Captain, I was a dab hand at this, protested Colon. Anyway, he added peevishly, a lot of other people have got them. That was true enough. Neighbouring rooftops bristled like hedgehogs. If the wretched thing turned up, it was going to think it was flying through solid wood with slops in it. You could almost feel sorry for it. I said, put it away, said Vimes. I'm not having my guards shooting citizens, so put it away. That's very true, said Carrot. We're here to protect and to serve, aren't we, Captain? Vimes gave him a sidelong look. Er, uh, he said. 
Yeah, yes, that's right. On the roof of her house on the hill, Lady Ramkin adjusted a rather inadequate folding chair on the roof, arranged the telescope, coffee flask and sandwiches on the parapet in front of her, and settled down to wait. She had a notebook on her knee. Half an hour went by. Hails of arrows greeted a passing cloud, several unfortunate bats and the rising moon. Bugger this for a game of soldiers, said Nobby eventually. It's been scared off. Sergeant Colon lowered his pike. <sighs> Looks like it, he conceded. And it's getting chilly up here, said Carrot. He politely nudged Captain Vimes, who was slumped against the chimney, staring moodily into space. Maybe we ought to be getting down, sir, he said. Lots of people are. Mm, said Vimes, without moving his head. Could be coming on to rain, too, said Carrot. Vimes said nothing. For some minutes he'd been watching the Tower of Art, which was the centre of Unseen University and reputedly the oldest building in the city. It was certainly the tallest. Time, weather and indifferent repairs had given it a gnarled appearance, like a tree that has seen too many thunderstorms. He was trying to remember its shape. As is the case with many things that are totally familiar, he hadn't really looked at it for years. Now he was trying to convince himself that the forest of little turrets and crenellations at its top looked just the same tonight as they had done yesterday. It was giving him some difficulty. Without taking his eyes off it, he grabbed Sergeant Colan's shoulder and gently pointed him in the right direction. He said, Can you see anything odd about the top of the tower? Colon stared up for a while and then laughed nervously. Well, it looks like there's a dragon sitting on it, doesn't it? Yes. That's what I thought. Only, only when you sort of look properly, you can see it's just made up out of shadows and clumps of ivy and that. I mean, if you half close one eye, it looks like two old women in a wheelbarrow. Vimes tried this. Nope, he said. It still looks like a dragon, a huge one, sort of hunched up and looking down. Look, you can see its wings folded up. Beg pardon, sir, that's just a broken turret giving the effect. They watched it for a while. Then Vimes said, Tell me, Sergeant, I ask it a spirit of pure inquiry. What do you think's causing the effect of a pair of huge wings unfurling? Colon swallowed. I think that's caused by a pair of huge wings, sir, he said. Spot on, Sergeant. The dragon dropped. It wasn't a swoop. It simply kicked away from the top of the tower and half fell, half flew straight downwards, disappearing from view behind the university buildings. Vimes caught himself listening for a thump. And then the dragon was in view again, moving like an arrow, moving like a shooting star, moving like something that has somehow turned a 32 feet per second per second plummet into an unstoppable upward swoop. It glided over the rooftops at little more than head height, all the more horrible because of the sound. It was as though the air was slowly and carefully being torn in half.